Hello. Welcome to Move This World with Sarah, conversations in social-emotional learning. I recently spoke with former presidential candidate, CEO, and business leader, Carly Fiorina. I must admit, I was pretty blown away by the vulnerability she brought to our conversation. Carly talked about the self-work she has done in all the areas of her life. She talked about walking toward fear and not away from it, something that I actively try to practice as an entrepreneur and a mother. What impressed me most was how she talked about these specific skills, bravery, self-awareness, self-confidence, skills that she practices and works toward every day. That being born a middle child, she cared deeply about pleasing others and has practiced staying true to herself and focusing on evolving and growing over being perfect. We don't need to sit in boardrooms or consider running for political office for her truth to hit home. Being the best versions of ourselves and functioning at the highest level requires us to look at ourselves, especially when it's scary and hard. And we must encourage those around us to do the same. It may mean difficult conversations and decisions, but in the end, we'll build lives of purpose over perfection. I am so honored to be here today with Carly Fiorina. Thank you so much for being here, Carly. It's my pleasure and delight to be with you, Sarah. Thank you for having me. Before we dive into our discussion today, we want to take a moment to center ourselves and ground ourselves to let go of whatever stressors or distractions we were carrying into this conversation so that we can be fully present to the discussion at hand. So let's take a moment and close our eyes if we're comfortable, put our feet flat on the ground beneath us, and take a deep breath in and out, and just noticing where we're carrying any weight or tension or stress in our bodies, and directing some love and light and attention, maybe even some warmth to that area, and taking another deep breath in and out. As we open our eyes, we will just imagine all of those distractions and stressors, emails, commitments, moving through the sky, away from us. They'll be there when we're done, but for now, we are here and ready to dive in. So something that really continues to sit with me that I read that you had said once is this idea of leaders seeing the truth, speaking the truth acting up on the truth, and even more profoundly for me, holding a mirror up so that other people can see the truth. And part of why that resonated with me so deeply is because for me as a leader, one of the hardest things is calling out the truth. And even when the truth is unpopular. And I was wondering if you could kind of expand on that quote and what that means for you. Well, you know, leadership is really about solving problems and changing the order of things for the better. That's what leaders do. I start there because it doesn't matter what your title is or what your position is or how old you are or what you look like. None of those things actually define leadership. What defines leadership is, are you solving the problems in front of you that need to be solved and therefore, are you changing things for the better? In order to change things for the better, 
you must see things as they truly are. And that's why a first step is always to see the truth, then to be able to speak the truth, because a lot of times, as we know, we can see what's true, but we're afraid to say it out loud. And until we say it out loud, we can't act on it. And so seeing the truth, having the courage to speak the truth, and then having the courage and building the alliances necessary to act on the truth, this is the essence of leadership. And as you point out, a lot of times the truth is really difficult, unpleasant. It's more fun. It's easier to sort of exist in a world of fantasy or to exist in a world of half-truths. This idea of the truth being hard It also can be scary, this idea of looking at truth as an extension of self-work, of having to really be honest with yourself about what's working and what's not. How do you, as a leader, make time for self-work and make time for that honest reflection that is so critical in order to actually function at the highest level in all aspects of our lives? Well, you use the key phrase, Sarah, honestly, I make time. And that's the truth. We all just have to make the time to be introspective, to be reflective, to get calm and centered so that we can see the truth. And while that's always hard, I think it's especially hard now because you know, our devices are inundating us with stuff every second of every day. And somehow we've gotten ourselves into this place where we feel like, oh my gosh, I have to respond. I have to respond. I have to be on all the time. And none of that is true. We don't have to respond. We don't have to be on all the time. And the only way to make the time to be introspective, to be reflective, to see the truth about ourselves or what's going on around us is to make the time to disconnect, to not respond, (laughs) to listen to ourselves and to reflect on where we really are. What are the ways that you do that, especially given all of your commitments that you hold and all of your responsibilities and all of the people who depend on you? How do you justify it, and what does that time look like for you of actually processing and disconnecting and reflecting? So I've had to learn over the course of my lifetime that I need a particular time of day to do it. So I schedule it, (laughs) just like we schedule everything that's important to us, right? I schedule that time, and for me, that time is first thing in the morning. I have to have a block of time that is my time. Okay, maybe my cat can join me or my dog (laughs) can join me, but I mean, basically, it's just me. I tend to love to do it when the sun is coming up. I've trained myself to be an early riser, so I have that time. So my advice would be, maybe you're not an early morning person. Maybe it's better for you at a different time, but schedule a time. The other thing that I would say, Sarah, is I make additional time at the end of big blocks of time. So for example, at the end of every year, I will spend more time reflecting 
on the year that's passed and thinking about the year that's coming up. If there's a particular demarcation point in the calendar, you know, maybe it's the spring equinox or something that says, okay, let me just pause and reflect not just on the day, but on the last couple months. Final thing, I look at my calendar all the time. And the reason I look at my calendar and reflect on it is I want to see how am I spending my time. Because how we spend our time becomes our life. And so we need to be deliberate about how we spend our time. And so I assess how I spend my time on a regular basis. If all we do is spend our time responding to others, then we're not living much of a life, are we? But boy, we're sure spending a lot of time. The idea of carving out time in the morning, that is something that has become really critical to me and even more so since becoming a mother. I have a morning ritual, the Artist Way morning pages, and it's a free write, three pages. You can write about anything. You could write about the sun is shining, I'm tired, I'm annoyed, or it's also the place where I get some of my biggest ideas. So for me, it's that kind of meditative, creative writing practice. But what is it for you in the morning? Is it just silence with your cat or your dog? Is it writing? How do you kind of access that reflective place for yourself? I write a lot of things in my work. And so I don't tend to write in my self-reflective time. For me, it's a period of quiet. I like to see something beautiful, which is why I tend to look at the sunrise. I tend to look outside. Natural beauty is calming to me. It's inspiring to me. I don't want music. I don't want talk. I just want peace and quiet and beauty. And that's so important to see the forest through the trees, especially as a leader when you have so much going on. How do you as a leader support and empower others to do that for themselves? Well, first, I think, you know, we lead by example, and we have to share with others what we've learned about this. So, you know, a lot of organizations lift up as heroic people who are literally frantic all the time. And I don't think that's heroic. I actually think it's destructive. And so what I tend to want to model for people, but also lift up others who do it is, I don't want people who are frantic. I want people who are measured, disciplined, self-reflective, calm. Because in my experience, people who are frantic make bad decisions. People who are harried and hurried all the time are missing something really important. And so I'm explicit about that and encourage people to carve out the time, let them carve out the time. And in fact, there have been times in my career when I've said to someone directly, the best thing you can do right now is go home or take a break or go on vacation. You need to regroup, recenter, and rethink. This idea of honesty, of holding up the mirror, you know, self-work, we said, is hard, is scary. A lot of people can be resistant to it. I don't think we necessarily have a society that celebrates self-work and reflection and pause. I mean, the fact that we have to schedule it, the fact that we have to do it early in the morning because there's no time for it and the 
you know, nine to six, whatever, workday. What do you say to someone who is really resistant to that self-work? Either they're coming from a place of fear because it is unknown, or maybe they do know or have an idea of what they may uncover. How do you navigate that, especially within a team? Well, you know, part of, I think, our problem these days is with the world that technology presents to us, but also with the person that technology helps us present to the world. So I say that because technology lifts up, gives us all these false pictures, but very compelling pictures of someone else's perfect life or someone else's perfect appearance or someone else's perfect whatever. And technology enables us, and this is particularly true with teens, of presenting an image to the world that isn't true, that isn't real. I mean, it so concerns me when I see young people spending so much time trying to take the perfect picture, curating the pictures, how do I share it with others? That's all about trying to present perfection as opposed to presenting the truth. And we're chewing up time trying to push this false picture so that no one criticizes us instead of doing the self-work. So the first thing that I would say is, and this is so basic, but we are not meant to be perfect. We are meant to be people who find purpose and meaning in our lives. And we are meant to grow and get better in our lives. But we are not meant to be perfect. And in fact, people in my estimation who are obsessed with perfection are the most scared people of all. Because, of course, they can never attain it, but they're fragile, they're brittle. If anyone points something out, they kind of fall apart. And that's not the way we're meant to be. (laughs) Well, it's certainly not the way we can grow and develop. No. And, you know, I had to learn the hard way because I've been subject to a lot of criticism in my life. From the time, actually, I was young because I was different to all the way to the present day, I had to learn the hard way that criticism is just part of life. It's always out there. And in fact, technology, again, makes criticism so easy. I mean, we can just criticize endlessly, anonymously, without consequence. And so it's really important to understand we're not meant to be perfect. We're never going to be perfect. The only way we grow is to try new things, which means we are going to make mistakes. The key is to learn from those mistakes, but also to accept that criticism is just part of life. It's always out there. And the people that are criticizing you, honestly, most of the time the criticism says more about them than it says about you. To the best you can, ignore criticism. It's different than feedback. Feedback is worth listening to. But criticism is just people taking pot shots. It's not worthy of anyone's time and attention. I'm glad you brought up criticism and this idea of perfection because I think especially for women leaders, that is something that broad stroke at large we struggle with. I want to feel perfect in this part of my life, in this part of my life, and I'm juggling all of these different roles and responsibilities. So it's really empowering and refreshing to hear you say, no, actually ignore the criticism. It doesn't matter. 
But I do see so many women who conflate the two, criticism and feedback. And I often have said to my team, feedback really comes from a place of love. It comes from a place of care. I care about you. I care about your development. How do you distinguish criticism and feedback? And what do you say to the people who, yes, they should absolutely ignore the criticism, but do need to receive and listen to feedback? Sarah, you really said it perfectly. Feedback comes from a place of love. When you are receiving feedback, you are getting it from someone who cares about you. They want you to be successful. They want you to develop. They want you to grow. They want the best for you. Those are people who are going to give you feedback. And sometimes that feedback is really hard to hear. So it's easy sometimes for people to conflate criticism and feedback because sometimes someone's giving you feedback and they're saying something like, you know, I don't think you handled this very well. Someone who's criticizing you may be saying exactly the same thing. I don't think you handle it very well. But a person who criticizes, they don't care about you. They don't wish for your success. Most of the time, people are criticizing you because they're trying to make themselves feel better. And I think it's what women struggle with a lot. In many cases, criticism comes from a place of envy or jealousy or insecurity. It doesn't come from a place of love or respect or support. The other thing that I think women really struggle with, yes, we want to be perfect in all these aspects of our lives. And guess what? We're not going to be because we're not meant to be perfect. None of us are perfect. We are going to make mistakes. We are going to drop balls. But the other thing that I think women particularly struggle with, two things actually. One, criticism directed toward women is different. It's more personal in many cases. The adjectives used are different. It's more pointed. The scrutiny is more intense. So it feels harder in many cases because it truly is. But I think women also struggle because we really want to be liked. Mm -hmm. We want to be liked. And criticism feels like somebody doesn't like me. I had to learn the hard way that honestly, it's more important to be productive, to be happy, to make a difference, and to have people who really care about me. All of those things are far more important than how many people like me. You know, even this line about being a leader is to see the truth, speak the truth, act on the truth, and not just get along. And when I think about people where that is the goal, is to just get along or just to be liked, it's certainly not the most effective. Well, you know, I said at the outset that leaders change the order of things for the better. Most people shy away from change, honestly. It's difficult. And so instead, they just kind of go along to get along. That's the difference between leadership and management. You know, you can be a really good manager, but basically what you're doing is just kind of dealing with things the way they are the best you can. If there's something in front of you that needs to change, and all of us have things in front of us that need to change, that requires leadership. And so once we decide that something has to change, someone isn't going to like it. Someone is going to criticize it. Someone is going to say, why can't you just go along to get along? And someone actually isn't going to like us. Maybe even a family member who we're trying to speak truth to. 
As a leader and as a politician, you have had to make decisions that may not necessarily be popular, especially in the short term, but have positive long-term consequences. What does that decision-making process look like? Like, how do you decide this is the path forward? I know it's not going to be popular at first or maybe even in the middle term, but I know this is the direction we need to go for the most transformative outcome. So I appreciate you calling me a leader. I hope I'm not a politician, even though I ran for political (laughs) office, because I think politicians honestly spend way too much time focused on the near term, the real near term, Mm -hmm. fundraising and winning the next election, (laughs) not the long term, which is the subject of your question. Look, I think that leaders need to be transparent about the long-term goal, but realistic about what is required to achieve that long-term goal and humble enough to recognize that they have to be able to show progress towards the long-term goal along the way. You can't start people out without telling them the full picture of where you're trying to go. But you also can't say to people, you know what, just bear with me here for the next three years because eventually it's going to be great. You have to be able to show progress along the way, and you have to be able to provide reinforcement and affirmation along the way as well, because those milestones of progress are what keep people going. So we know this, for example, when we deal with our kids. You know, we will say things to our kids like, look, don't do this today. Don't, you know, throw your homework away and rush off and be with your friends because it's really important that you finish this assignment. I know it's difficult. I know it's going to take you three or four days. But, you know, as a reward on day two, we're going to go off and do this for a little break. In other words, we understand in most of our relationships how to establish a long-term goal, establish points of progress along the way, and provide reinforcement and positive feedback along the way. It's not so much different. Even when you're dealing with a big organization and a big complicated decision, the same principles apply. The long-term vision has to be clear. The reasons for it have to be compelling. And there has to be real points of progress and positive reinforcement along the way. So let's say that's your implementation plan, but even getting to that point requires tremendous courage and bravery, especially knowing that it may be unpopular, that you may face criticism. For you personally, where does that courage and bravery come from? So the honest answer is it just takes practice. I wasn't a brave person growing up, not at all. I was a goody two-shoes middle child. My highest calling was to please other people, honestly. And I desperately wanted to be liked. I desperately wanted to please other people. I learned along the way with difficult circumstances when something really difficult would be thrown my way. You know, my first business meeting was going to happen inside a strip club. And I'm a young 23-year-old woman. So life presented these obstacles in front of me, as it does for us all. And instead of avoiding them and running away, I had to face them. And so I learned courage. I practiced courage. And what I will tell people, anyone who's afraid, is we're all afraid. We're all afraid of something. I've talked to the bravest warriors on the battlefield who are afraid. 
we're all afraid. It's part of the human condition. And yet it is also true that we can learn courage. We can practice it. It gets easier over time. I learned an exercise a long time ago where I would say, okay, what's the worst thing that can happen? And I would say it out loud. What's the worst thing that can happen? And then I would reflect on that. And then I would say, okay, I can deal with that worst thing. But here's what I will tell your listeners. Every time I have found courage to do something difficult, whether it was going to the strip club or recognizing and confronting our daughter who was an addict, every time best things have happened too. Positive things have happened that I didn't anticipate, but that allowed me to continue and to keep going. So if you're afraid, you're not alone. Sit with the worst thing that can happen. Deal with that. Face it. Just know that if you find your courage and you confront that difficult decision or that obstacle, something good is going to come along as well. This idea of courage and bravery being a skill, we talk a lot about all of our social-emotional skills, that empathy is a muscle that we have to flex, it's active work, it's active practice, the ability to identify, express, and manage our emotions, even creativity, which is the foundation of all that we do at Move This World. How do you find opportunities to practice courage and bravery? So if I say, I want to become a more brave person. What does that look like in a day? What advice would you give? What opportunities are there to actually flex that muscle and practice that skill? Well, first, I love that you also mentioned creativity and empathy, because when I teach leadership, I always say empathy is one of the most important qualities a leader has. And imagination and seeing possibilities is one as well. And so is courage. So how do you practice courage? We talked about self-reflection. Reflect on what scares you. What is it that scares you? And then walk towards it. Don't avoid it. The longer you avoid what scares you, the scarier it becomes. <laughs> the worse it gets. You can start small with something little that scares you. Gee, I'm afraid to wear this particular outfit to school today because I'm afraid so-and-so is going to criticize me. Okay, do it. Wear it. See what happens. What I will tell you about practicing courage, it's like, you know, walking or working out or anything else. The more you do it, the more you can do it. So identify what frightens you. And instead of running away and avoiding it, run toward it. Deal with it confront it, do it. I have a vision of you doing that as, you know, all of the criticism that bombarded you, and I have this vision of you just walking toward it peacefully. What would you say for women at work where there's criticism coming at them, there's all of this added pressure, what do you hope to see change for women at work in the next generation of women leaders? It's such an important question. You know, the, the first thing I would say, and it applies to everyone, but it particularly applies to women, or frankly, anyone who's different, but let's just stick with women. I think when we talk about leadership and in a 
company setting, we get so confused between style and substance. And so much of what we talk about is all about style. And actually, it's only the substance that matters. (laughs) And so I think the first thing that I hope for, you know, when you hear a lot of men trying to mentor women, so often what they're talking about is style, not substance. And guess what? Women are different than men. They express themselves differently than men. They look differently than men. They collaborate differently than men. So can we not talk about the style of how they get that done, but the substance of what they get done? I would say that to men. What I would say to women is don't hang up about your style. Look, when I was coming up in the corporate world, there was a book called How to Dress for Success for Women. It was all about your style. And it was a book that told you how to dress. And basically, the book told you to look as much like a man as possible, except for please wear a skirt. (laughs) Well, okay, I tried that for about six months. And then it was like, I'm not doing this. This isn't me. I'm going to instead try and focus on the substance of the results I deliver. So that takes most men to understand that it's not style, and it takes women to understand that it's not style. The other thing that I would hope for is that men and women, but now I'm going to talk particularly to men, understand that diverse teams are more effective teams. The data is overwhelming. We don't talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion because it's the right thing to do, although it is. We should talk about it because it's the more effective thing to do. When you have diverse teams of men and women, the results are better. And the reason the results are better is because different people challenge each other. We don't all think alike. We don't all bring the same ideas to the table. And when we are bringing different ideas to the table, the outcomes are better. So given that women traditionally, historically, have not had a seat at the table, a seat at most tables, how do you see, speak the truth? How do you hold up the mirror? How do you encourage others to do the same when there hasn't really been an opportunity? This is the hard truth. First, I would say to women, Find those who lift you up. They are there. They may be women, they may be men, but find the people in the organization who are on your side, who do see your substance, who are giving you real feedback. Find them. The second thing I would say is so often for women, power is never granted, we must take it. And what I mean by that, I know it sounds sort of radical maybe, but what I mean by that is if no one gives you the opportunity to speak, speak. I can remember being in a meeting, all men, I was the most junior woman there, and I knew more about the subject than anyone else, but I wasn't being given an opportunity to talk. And there was a man talking away as if he knew what he was talking about, and he didn't. And the meeting was going to move on, and I had to find my courage and say, I'm sorry, Mr. So-and-so is incorrect. These are the facts about this issue. This is what we should be thinking about. Was that difficult to do? Yes. Did I receive criticism for it? Yes. But guess what? There were one or two men in that room who heard it, who heard me, and who 
helped going forward. They're always there. But if no one will give you an opportunity to speak, take it when you know what you're talking about. I love that. I want to print that out and put that on my mirror when I brush my teeth every morning. How do you cultivate that courage? How do you take that opportunity in a space where you are the underdog and everyone around you has seen you as an underdog? You're having to not just assert yourself, but assert your identity with confidence in a space that is not conducive or hasn't historically been conducive for that. How do you do that? So I think, honestly, it, you know, I, I don't want to say it's easy. It's not easy. It's taken me a lifetime to learn how to do it, and I don't always do it well. So let's acknowledge it's very difficult. But for me, I think it starts with the realization, which comes from self-reflection and self-work. I think it comes from the realization that what other people think about me or say about me doesn't define me. The only thing that defines me is what I choose to do with my life and my gifts. That's it. That's what defines us. I think that is gorgeous and freeing and liberating and so hard to arrive at. I think I can think of so many people who would love to get there. Yeah, it is hard. It is hard because what other people say about you and what other people think about you is all around you all the time, particularly in this day and age. And so you can just get overwhelmed by what other people are saying and thinking about you. And you can become paralyzed, totally paralyzed, by what other people are saying and thinking about you. And yet, when they've stopped saying and thinking it about you, who are you? You are what you choose to do. That is your lasting legacy. And so I just think you have to realize that. Look, I'll tell you a a, a painful story, but to try and bring it down to a really basic level, I mentioned our daughter was an addict. And for a long time, we avoided that truth. We refused to see it. My husband and I refused to speak it. And so therefore, we were not acting on it. And for a long time, one of the reasons we did not see it or speak it or act on it is because we were worried about what people would say and think about us. Oh my God, they're terrible parents. What's wrong with them? How could they let this go on? How could they not stop this? Until we had to realize, you know what? Who we are as parents is not defined by what these other people think about us. It's defined by how we choose now to try and care for our daughter. That's a tough example. It's a hard example, but it's a real example. And life is full of examples just like that. Am I not going to do what I think is right because of what other people are saying and thinking? Or am I going to do it because I know it is the decision that must be made? Because when all those people who are talking fade away and go away and forget about all this, what you've done is what's going to stick with you and is what's going to stick with the people who care about you and who you care about. And that can be so hard when you feel like you're constantly being attacked or criticism. the criticism and attention is swirling. How do you move through and navigate disappointment, criticism, all that you have faced in your career 
How do you navigate those challenges and face disappointment? First, I had to learn that while critics are always the loudest, so a lot of times in our personal lives, in our professional lives, all we hear are the critics, but our friends, our allies are there. They're just quiet. Mm -hmm. So seek out the people who support you. Seek out the people who lift you up. Go cry on their shoulder if you have to, and I have had to, so that you're refreshed when all that criticism is coming your way. Secondly, back to the basics, just understand criticism is part of life. And finally, back to the basics we talked about before, accept that you're not perfect. Accept that you're going to make mistakes. Acknowledge mistakes when you make them. It takes the sting out of the criticism, and it will gain you allies if you're willing to acknowledge mistakes. But the best any of us can do, the best any of us can do is, have I done the things I thought I should do to the best of my abilities for the right reasons? And have I given all of my energy and devotion to those things for the right reasons? And if you've done that, you can put your head on the pillow at night and rest easy because you've done what you're supposed to do. I think it's so hard. I'm thinking of a dear friend of mine who is an artist, and one of his recent projects has received significant criticism. And there's this question of if maybe I had played it more safe, if I hadn't really taken a risk, if I hadn't been bold, if I really hadn't pushed my creative potential to the fullest, would I have made this mistake, so to speak, or as it's being viewed, would I receive this criticism? If I had just kind of chugged along with the status quo, it would have certainly been safer. You know, it takes so much courage and bravery to be bold, to take risks, to kind of push ourselves outside of our comfort zones. And yes, we can be bold and reach fuller potential and more possibilities, but it's also scary. So how would you push yourself beyond that? Okay, I could stay here in my comfort zone where it's safer and maybe not fail and not make a mistake and be perfect. Or I could take this risk and have a huge transformative outcome, but fail. Sometimes I think we have to dissect and separate the word mistake and failure. A great inventor once said, there's no such thing as a failure. There's just figuring out what not to do the second time. The word failure is so heavy for people. And because it's a heavy word, they think, oh my God, I can't take a risk because I might fail. On the other hand, it's also true that the only way we grow is to try new things. If we go back to when we were a kid, we weren't afraid to try something new. We took joy in trying something new. And we would make a mistake. We would skin our knee, but we would learn something and we would grow. Charles Darwin said, it is not the strongest of the species that survives, nor the most intelligent, but those most adaptive to change. That's true. It's true of people. People who are able to change and grow are more successful people, they're happier people, they're more fulfilled people. People who are afraid to move, to try anything new because, oh my gosh, I might fail, as opposed to saying, I'm going to try something new 
I might make a mistake. I may get criticized, but neither are fatal. A mistake is not fatal unless you don't learn anything from it. Criticism is never fatal unless you are cowed by it, unless you are diminished by it. If you're going to grow, if you're going to achieve anything, you have to take a risk, which means you are going to make a mistake, which means people are going to criticize you. It is a law of the universe. (laughs) But we can't just stay in our little shell, afraid to move in case we make a mistake. So on that note of changing and growing, we're living in a highly polarized, politicized moment in time. Where do we go from here? What do you hope 20 years from now looks like? I want to go all the way back to a word that you used before, empathy. And I want to say that I think we have to stop hoping that someone else will fix our polarization problem. Politicians are not going to fix it because it serves politicians. It serves politicians for us to be polarized. They raise money on it. They win elections on it. If we want to be less polarized, then we as individuals have to seek out people with whom we disagree. We have to seek out people that we're different from. We have to have empathy for their point of view. We have to try and understand their point of view. So rather than pointing upward and saying, oh my gosh, we need some big, huge, abstract solution to a big, huge problem, what I advise people is, you know what? Go sit down with somebody that you think you disagree with. Go sit down with somebody that you don't understand and try and understand them better and try and have a civil conversation with them. In my experience, those kinds of conversations can be sometimes difficult and awkward, but more often than not, they are rewarding and revelatory because we learn something about someone else, but we also learn something about ourselves. So given the current state and how we are navigating all of the politicization and polarization, what do you hope young people learn from watching how adults are conducting ourselves in the face of this division? (laughs) (laughs) I hope that young people are better than we are at distinguishing style and substance. I think technology makes that harder, as I've mentioned. But people should be judged by their substance, not by their style, not by their appearance, by who they are, how they treat others, how they contribute to what's going on around them. I hope that young people will understand that you don't have to tackle the biggest problem in the world that's abstract, that you can actually just tackle a problem that's right in front of you that might seem small and unimportant, but actually if you tackle that seemingly small and unimportant problem, a lot of good things will happen along the way. One of them is you'll learn courage. Another one of them is that things will get better and you'll find allies in that process. And the third good thing that will happen is if you solve a small problem, the next time you can solve a slightly bigger problem. And the more problem solving we do, the more we wanna do it. And we got a lot of problems in this world. So yes, there are big abstract problems in this world and they're important. 
but focus on the little problem right in front of you and practice on that. I love this idea of practice and being proactive and getting ahead of it. And I hope that my young girls, two and four, when they're old enough to listen to this conversation, (laughs) will really think about the opportunities they have to practice problem solving and courage and everything you say, because it's not as if, you know, this is who we are and we don't have a chance to evolve and grow. These really are skills that we can build over time. As we kind of wrap up this conversation, Carly, I want to give us an opportunity to ground ourselves and close. There's been so much inspiration in this discussion that gives me hope for the future, not just as leaders and as organizations, but as society and as a nation in particular that is moving through or sitting in division. Your words give me a sense of hope and empathy. So as we close, let's just take a moment to identify something that is inspiring us right now in this moment. It could be an idea, a word, or phrase, but let's hold on to that sense of inspiration as we take two big breaths together. So let's take one breath in and exhale. Let's take a second breath in. And exhale. I'll go first. Carly, in this moment, I'm feeling really inspired by honesty and courage and difficult conversations that can lead to more positive outcomes. And Sarah, in this moment, I'm inspired by your commitment to helping people grow and practice those skills that we need all throughout our lives. Life, hopefully, is long, and we can grow every minute of that long life. And if we don't grow and if we don't evolve, it's a missed opportunity. So it's on us to do that for ourselves and to support our communities and our families and our schools to be accountable in that growth together. So thank you. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thanks for listening to Move This World with me, Sarah Potler Lahane. Before you go, wherever you are right now, join me for one final breath and hold in your mind a word or phrase that you are taking away from this conversation. Breathe in and out. At Move This World, we know social and emotional wellness is necessary, relevant, and impacts our everyday lives at school, in our homes, at our workplaces, and in our relationships. The tools we need to develop are critical for our happiness and success as individuals and as communities. Together, we can create a world where everyone belongs. To explore more ways to move this world, visit us at movethisworld.com or follow us on Twitter at move underscore this world. If you liked this episode, please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast was produced by Jessica Altunian and Seaplane Armada. I cannot wait to move this world with you.